0: So this is, this is going to be a high-tech sermon, you know it already, because I'm, I'm busting out my iPhone and everything, you know, I don't usually do that sort of thing. Good morning, everybody, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. You know we can still say that, right? We can still say Merry Christmas. You know, the 12 days of Christmas is more than just a song, it's part of our liturgical calendar. And uh, so, you know, keep the Christmas cookies flowing, that's what I say on that. <laughs> Have you ever thought actually about how many birds are in this song, The Twelve Days of Christmas? (laughs) Well, I looked it up on this thing called the internet. I told you this is going to be a high tech sermon. And on the seventh day, here's the rundown, all right? Seven swans of swimming, six geese of laying, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. That's right. Um, Was anybody able to count that fast? How many birds? 23 23 birds. Yes. Well done. Um, And I just want to say to all the ladies out there, um, if a guy ever tries to give you 23 birds for Christmas, (laughs) you should probably run from that man. Because he would be a weirdo. Um, 23 birds. I mean, this is a lot. So... Um, all right, this, is, this, this sermon's about to come off the rails already, all right? Let me, let me say a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. I just wanted you guys to know that it's still Christmas, okay? Let's pray. Pray for me, please. <laughs> Father in heaven, we exalt afresh over your Son, our Savior Jesus, over his incarnation this morning. And we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight this morning. O oh God, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to continue in the Christmas season, and uh, we have this profound reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I bet you there's at least a few people in this room who that's their favorite reading in all of Scripture. Uh, It's a common favorite. It's just such a deep text. You know, years back, I was... um, reading a, a book by a theologian named uh, Joseph Ratzinger, and uh, Ratzinger is actually more commonly known as, um, uh, uh, not Pope Francis, uh, Pope, uh, Pope Benedict, the, the Pope just before Pope Francis. He was a really, really bright guy. So I'm reading this book by him, uh, just by the simple title, Jesus of Nazareth. That's the name of the book. And of course, there have been thousands of books written about Jesus, and for good reason. I think most people would agree, even if somebody's not religious, that Jesus is one of the most, if not perhaps the most, uh, influential historical figures in all of history. And so near the beginning of Ratzinger's book, he poses this question. He says, um, what is Jesus' most important contribution to human history? So what's his biggest area of impact? So you can kind of file through your mind and think how he might answer that question. He, he goes through the list of possible answers, and he says, you know, well, we could talk about Jesus' moral teaching and how his moral teaching sort of has jogged the conscience of humanity, and, and that would be a pretty good answer, or we could talk about Jesus' impact on art, right? I mean, how has the life, death, resurrection of Jesus impact painting and architecture and music and literature? I mean, I think... Um, <coughs> You know half of children's movies nowadays, you know uh, have some sort of Christ illusion, you know whether it's whether it's uh, uh, Princess Anna you know having a sacrificial death and resurrection and Frozen or or whether it's you know Anakin Skywalker having a virgin birth. There's all kinds of uh, allusions to Christ in the movies. And no doubt we could also have a conversation about Jesus's impact on things like Law and social justice and basic human rights. I mean, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, when it comes to things like, um, like the rights and dignity of the physically and mentally handicapped, women's suffrage, the abolition of slavery, all these movements have their roots in the movement that Jesus started. All those movements have roots in the teaching and in the person of Jesus. But Ratzinger says that all these things are actually secondary. Because there's something far more fundamental that Jesus brought to human history. And that is this. That through Jesus, people have consistently come into contact with God. Through Jesus, people have met God. And it doesn't matter whether you're poor or rich Whether you're bright or dull, whether you're part of a traditional agrarian culture or a post-industrial culture, all kinds of people have seen in Jesus this clear, luminous portrait of the face of God. And this, says Ratzinger, is humanity's most basic need. To know and be known in the ultimate sense. Because we're fundamentally relational creatures. And you can look to kind of fill that need in food, uh, in Christmas cookies, like like I might have in the last few days. (laughs) But you won't find it there, I can testify. They're good, but you won't fill that need there. You can look for it um, in the affirmation of an earthly father or an earthly mother. That's a major theme in movies nowadays, isn't it? But ultimately, you won't find it there. You can look for it even in marriage. And there, even still, it won't satisfy. Because if we're looking for something ultimate, if we're looking for something infinite in something that's finite, that thing, that good thing, even can become an idol to us. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in the hearts of man. And so our ache is an eternal ache. It can only be satisfied by an infinite being. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, he says, "Um, If I'm honest with myself and I look within myself, I see a desire for which nothing in this world can satisfy. He says, But that, that doesn't actually make sense. Why would I have a desire that can't be satisfied? Desires are supposed to have a corresponding satisfaction. So we experience something like thirst. And it makes sense that we do because there's something called water that we need in order to survive. We experience, uh, you know, a a desire for sexual intimacy and God has provided something for that. We experience all kinds of desires and it makes sense that they would have a corresponding satisfaction. So what, he says, would be the purpose of God, of, of, of having this desire for something eternal, this desire for something in which nothing in this world can satisfy unless it can be satisfied, but not by something in this world. Lewis writes this, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. He says probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So I agree with Ratzinger that this is humanity's most basic existential need to know God, and somehow through this figure, through this person, Jesus of Nazareth, we find them. Or, or it might be more accurately accurate to say, He finds us, right? The Gospel of John chapter 1 describes this reality in a variety of ways. It says that the light shines in the darkness. It says that the Word, who in the beginning was with God and was God, the Word, the rational principle behind all things, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. Right? Nobody has ever peered behind that veil. No one has ever seen into heaven and seen God face to face. But somehow, Jesus has made God known. And this is why Christmas is such a big deal, Charlie Brown. (laughs) Because through the coming of Christ... The invisible God has made himself visible. One theologian referred to Jesus as the sacrament of God. He said Jesus is the sacrament of God, and I had to think about that for a little bit to decide whether I liked it. (laughs) But the church has defined a sacrament as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, of an inward and spiritual reality. We think of the bread that's, that's the body of Christ broken for us, the blood poured out for us, the, the waters of baptism, where he says, in Jesus we see the ultimate intersection between heaven and earth, in this God-man, and it points us beyond this world. I think this point, um, it reminds me of a book called Flatland, and if you've ever heard me preach at, at a wedding, you've heard this analogy, but um, there's this uh, there's this book, and it, it's Called Flatland, it's about this completely flat land. Makes sense, right? <laughs> um, and uh, there's, there's all these two-dimensional beings, like uh, triangles and circles and you know, rectangles, and they're all kind of moving all around on their flat land, and when they have to move past each other, they have to go like this, right? Because there's no third dimension, they can't move over each other, right? And, uh, and in, in the book, um, this flat land um, actually receives a visitor from another dimension, And it's a sphere. But when the sphere visits the flatland, what does the sphere look like? It looks like a circle. It looks like a circle. And and so, uh, you know, the the circle is trying to tell everybody, you know, I'm from this third dimension. There's something beyond this second dimension. And everybody's like, yeah, right. You know, they just sort of, they don't receive him. He's rejected. Well, when the Son of God came down from heaven, he was like a three-dimensional visitor In a two-dimensional world. And people didn't know what to do with him. John 1 verse 10 says he was in the world. And the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Right? This transcendent being enters the world. And the world's like, I don't know this guy. Verse 11 says his own people did not receive him. And if that were the end, then it would be a sad story. But it's not the end. Verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And the next verse goes on to explain this rebirth, not in terms of flesh and blood or human decision, but somehow, he says, we get to be born of God. Somehow, by faith in Christ, we're born of God. And this is the gospel, that we are invited into God's family through faith in Christ. God wants to invite us into his family. Galatians 3 essentially says the same thing, but instead of using the language of birth, it uses the language of adoption. So Paul says that um, the Mosaic law was like a babysitter or a guardian that kept us in line until Christ came. But now, by faith in Christ, we're no longer under lock and key, he says. In fact, we've been given the keys to the whole estate. We've become heirs. So, he says, you're no longer a slave but a son, Here in Galatians 4 7, and if a son, then an heir through God. So I think we can can all agree that adoption is just a uniquely loving act, right? Because it involves a choice on the part of the parents to say to a child, I choose you. I want to bring you into my family. I remember when my uh, girls um, first started in kindergarten or first grade or whatever they first started meeting. Friends who were adopted. And uh, at first they kind of mentioned this to me. They were sad about it. They said, you know, this, is, this doesn't seem right. Like they don't know their parents who gave birth to them. And um, I remember explaining to them, I said, you know, um, well, they, yes, they don't have that intimacy with their parents, that intimacy of being related by blood, but they do have an intimacy that comes with being chosen by their parents. So their parents have made a special choice for them. And, and then I said to them, you know, me and mommy, we're not related by blood. You know, we're related by choice. We chose each other. We made a covenant to each other, and that's why we're family. You know, you're related to mommy by blood, you're related to daddy by blood, but we're related to each other by choice. And that seems to make them feel better. You know, so adoptions, God, God, adoption, God's willingness to adopt us and make us heirs, I think is a uniquely beautiful thing, just as it's a uniquely beautiful thing for uh, a father, a mother, to have their own offspring and to text the picture about it and be excited about it. <laughs> so sometimes scripture portrays um, God as a as sort of a proud biological father, you might say. And at other times, uh, he is portrayed as, as a unique chooser, as somebody who chooses us by adoption. Either way, the point is again the same, that God wants us in his family and the way that we receive that offer is by faith in Christ or what John says believing in his name that's how we receive that but the image of the father is not the only one in our readings today let's turn to our reading from Isaiah 62 which on page 621 in your pew bible this is a, just an amazing reading from Isaiah 62 and we see God here portrayed as a bridegroom who is passionate for his bride, his people. Isaiah sixty-two five says, "As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you." And then it's almost—I like get this image of like the bridegroom speaking beautiful things into her ear. In sixty-two verse four, the Lord says, "You shall no more be termed forsaken." <coughs> And your land shall no more be termed desolate. You shall be called. My delight is in her. Isn't that beautiful? That's what what God wants to express to his people. My delight is in you. And your land married, he says. And throughout the chapter, the bride is portrayed as being made beautiful by the righteousness of the groom. And so in 61.10, she's clothed with garments of salvation and covered with the robe of righteousness. So these images of she's being made beautiful, she's being crowned with the beauty and splendor of the bridegroom. So we might ask, right, how does this transfer take place? How does the bridegroom accomplish her salvation? And Isaiah gives us many hints and prophecies, but we don't see their fulfillment until Christ arrives on the scene more than 700 years later. And then it becomes plain. He accomplishes her salvation by forsaking his own glory. That's how he does it. He gives her his life by taking on her death. That's why husbands in the New Testament are told in Ephesians 5, it's read at every Christian marriage, just about every Christian wedding I've been to, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. See, it's about God and his people here. Without spot or wrinkle or any such that, that she might be holy without blemish. So in short, Christ loves his bride and lays down his life so that she can share in his glory. She can share in the beauty of his holiness. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard uh, gives a beautiful description of this in his parable of the king who loved the humble maiden. And in this parable, the king is agonizing uh, over his love for a peasant woman. And he's wondering, "How how can I be with her? How, can, how could this thing work? And he's sort of agonizing over it. And he goes, he goes through his options. He says, I, I could I bring her up into the splendor of the courts. And he says, but that would only make her feel like, unworthy and self-conscious. He says, he could appear in the streets in all his glory. But that would only lead to his own exaltation. And he wants her to share in his glory. In the end, the king decides that the only thing to be done is to set aside all of his splendor and glory and to become a lowly peasant himself. Listen to Kierkegaard's interpretation of the parable in his own words. He says this. He says, God must become the equal of the lowest, but the lowest is the one who serves others. God, therefore, must appear in the form of a servant. God suffers all things, endures all things, is tried in all things, hungers in the desert, thirsts in his agonies, is forsaken in death, and became absolutely the equal of the lowest of human beings. Look! Behold the man! He yields his spirit and death on a cross and leaves the earth. Kierkegaard concludes that love is overjoyed when it unites equals, but it is triumphant when it makes equal that which is unequal. Let the king's love reign. So as we begin to draw to a close, let's consider once more the basic message of our scripture readings. All three of our readings today present these relational images. So John 1 talks about being born into God's family. Galatians 3 talks about being adopted by him as his heir. Isaiah 61 and 62 speaks of the heart of the bridegroom for his beloved bride. And all three of these images reveal the kind of intimate relationship that God wants to have with his people. God loves us with a passionate love. And he's saying in all these readings, I want you to be in my family. I want you to be in my family. I've made a way for that to happen. Christianity has always taught that God uses visible things to point to the invisible mysteries of God. It really presents what we might call a sacramental worldview, and that goes beyond you know, just the bread and wine of Holy Communion, these, these sort of three-dimensional emblems that unite us to the risen Christ, but also just to the simple ordering of nature, that as we look at the structure of the family, as we look at the Father, as we look at marriage... We learn something about the heart of God. But most of all this Christmas, we remember to look at Jesus of Nazareth. The Word made flesh. The light that shines in the darkness. The sacrament of God, whose most important contribution is beyond all historical reckoning. Because through Him, we meet God. Our eternal ache is satisfied in no one else. Nor could it be, because John says, no one has ever seen God, except one, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen.